No matter in life what you try to do, you're dead too. Hello, and welcome to You're Dead Too, a podcast about our shared inevitable demise. My name is John Toyson, and I am your host. Today's episode, we have on my good friend Brian to talk about what it's been for him to be raised in a very religious household, what that's meant for him getting out of that, and how he's dealt with the world around him, particularly in light of the fact that he recently died. It's not really spoiling the story to put this out there. I'd rather people know this going in, that it is a heavy, bizarre story that uh, I've never gotten tired of talking to Brian about. I, I, I knew going into this entire project of doing a podcast, he was somebody who I really wanted to have on and have him share his story because it's been so profound and so impactful in my life that I, I, I just feel that everybody benefits from hearing it. So he was kind enough to come on and talk about it. He had his uh, new son with him in the room, and he was very good and very quiet sitting in the corner, and uh, we were very thankful for his cooperation. But really, as I say every time, thank you so much for listening. It really means the world to me that you would want to hear what people would have to say about death and what it means to be a mortal person and how we all grapple with this, because frankly, no one gets out of here alive. So... Thank you for listening, and buckle in, because it's going to be a weird one. Okay, so we're going. So, Brian, who are you? My name is Brian Boyer. Yes, and where did you grow up? I grew up in Minnesota. Okay. Um, what would you say is like the basic version of here's who I am? Here's who I am. I was born um, to Andy and Susan Boyer in Pontiac, Michigan. Shortly moved to Minnesota afterwards because my father was in seminary. Grew up as a church kid. So I, uh, my father started as a youth pastor so when I was young. It was pretty fun because uh, I'd get to be a part of youth group events all of the time. We'd go on trips together. Eventually started a church in our house, and we moved into Minneapolis. Um, lived with my parents until I left to go to college. Uh, I had a very uh, not-so-fun but not also not successful freshman year at college. Uh, bounced around for a while figuring out my education. Um, graduated, got a job. Now I work a nine to five for a financial institution. Met my wife when I was 22 years old and dated for forever, eventually. <laughs> Basically got, since then until now. <laughs> got married, uh, bought a house, had a kid, had another kid. Uh, so now I'm a guy who works at, at a job from nine to five and goes home to his house and watches network television on a Tuesday night post pictures of my kids on Instagram. Right oh. And I would say generally you seem to be a pretty well adjusted guy in that when it comes to satisfaction in life, if you are not satisfied with something, you'll work towards it, but would you say that you're somebody who generally you're pretty happy with your life? Yeah, I'm pretty happy with my life. I think I'm in a good place. I think that everybody can aspire for more, but I'm pretty satisfied with where I am. It's pretty sweet. 
Yeah, something you and I would always connect on is the idea of why not at least try to be better or do better? Like, don't just coast on like, well, I got to here. I guess this is it. Like, no, try to be a better person. Try to get some exercise, better yourself, learn something once in a while and try to be a good person if possible. Yeah, I get bored. And I think that's a big part of that is like if you uh, if I don't have aspirations in some way, shape or form. Uh, then I really, really just don't do anything. So it's one or the other. Either I just sit on a couch for forever or I get up and do it and I have to grab it and take control of it. So So when you mentioned you were raised in a pretty religious household, was it dogmatic and strict or was it more so that God was this ever-present thing? Your, Your dad was very, I mean, he was a pastor or a priest? He was a pastor. I don't know. It, it, what I find Christianity to have a strange twist on however they want to put that so i would say yeah it was strict there were parts that were strict but then it was lenient when it was convenient um so lenient when it's convenient (laughs) i like that i grew up in a house where we there was a lot of um what i now realize is propaganda so when you listen to music it was all christian music and christian tv shows and christian movies but i i was allowed to live outside like i know people who just lived within that bubble and they weren't exposed to what else was out there so we had a nice mix of that christianity but then also the ability to to explore outside of that however i would say exploration outside of christianity was always uh discouraged to a degree so the artists that were christian artists were the ones that we can explore the ones that weren't were still great but not as good as these christian artists so you feel you're free to dig into all of the dc talk b-sides and like back catalog but anything remotely secular you're like "Mm, maybe that's maybe brian shouldn't be digging into sublime's latest album yeah until i got older and then something happened you know around middle school where um they allowed me to be able, they disapproved, but they allowed me to explore on my own. So I got into rap music. Um, but then at that point, I think the problem is, is because uh, all of these areas have been so faux pas for all of your life that as soon as you get the opportunity to get some freedom, it's like, I want to jump the opposite direction. So that's where you're listening to like two live crew on repeat just because you don't even know what the words mean you just know you're not supposed to know the words at the end of the day yeah and all i wanted was the nastiest the dirtiest the sexiest everything that you could get your hands on um and i just ran wild for a while and uh, this would have been the height of this was the mid 90s so this would have been the height of like the pearl clutching like <gasps> gangster rap for our children in the midwest like parental advisories tupac east coast west coast this was like the height of demonization of rap culture and it's pretty impressive your parents were like you know he's gonna be okay yeah my um uh i don't know i, I can't explain why they were all right with it i i think that my dad tried to turn a corner when he started his own church in the inner city and it was supposed to reach out to people who were uh on the fringes of society all um so he had a rolling stone stone subscription and then he'd read about how (laughs) tupac was actually the newest artist of our generation um and so it was he just didn't understand the art but it was there sure uh i think my mother definitely didn't didn't approve any of it but i also think she was kept in the dark so obviously you were in the middle of it but was the experience of having your dad start a church within your own house was that particularly unusual or noteworthy or was it just like oh this is what he does he's just bringing his work home with him now i don't know our house was always open to people 
So when I was really little, we lived in the church house that's on the property. I can't think what those are called right now. Not seminary, but... Um, yeah, anywho. Yeah. We lived in that free house that's in the parking lot of the church. Yeah. So there were always people in the house. And then when he was a youth pastor, we were always having parties at our house uh, for the kids. So I, I don't think it was any different. It just kind of shifted to adults now. Um, I remember thinking that like they were doing the right thing and that... It was all for the good because we were reaching out to people of the inner city, of the mean streets of uptown Minneapolis, <laughs> to, to be able to, to transform them and, and help them see the true light of Jesus Christ. As you got to your you know, middle school and teenage years, was there a particular point at which you started to question things? Or was it more so the idea of just rebelling against your parents and thinking they don't necessarily know what's best for me? Or was what kind of a turning point was there for you, if at all? No, I don't think there was a definitive turning point at any point in my life. What I think there were were realizations that things that I always thought was wrong with me, um, that it wasn't something that was wrong. And, and I think a good example of that is I never understood faith. I never understood the feeling of faith, of knowing with absolute certainty that this thing exists. And for a long time as a kid, I fought with that. Like I, I don't have faith because I don't have an attention span. So I can't pay attention long enough to find Jesus Christ. I can't pray because I can't keep my eyes closed long enough to do this. And as I got older, I think it really came in my later teenage years and early adult years, the realization that that, that wasn't something that was wrong with me. I literally just didn't have faith, and I searched for it, but I didn't find the answers that I was looking for. Um, but I do remember a definitive moment with my parents uh, where things changed. Um, I mean, as a kid, having a church inside of your house, and then eventually my dad did like merge with another church, so watching the politics of like this old traditional church and then this new age church kind of mold together, I, I saw how poisonous it was and how it was personal agendas. So that was a turning point. But I, I remember a big turning point for me was we had this homeless guy come to our the back of our house Um and I was out playing basketball, and he stopped and just started talking to me. Um, and he needed help. Like, he had had his heels run over by a train at some point recently. He was living under the train tracks, and his heels got clipped by a train. And I remember him taking off his socks and, like, just giant open wounds where your heels would be of just nasty, infected flesh. And he was asking me for socks. And I remember my mom came outside and, like, yelled at me to get back inside um, talking to this guy. And at that point, I had been talking to him for, like, 15 minutes. I mean, I was probably 13 years old. So, like, a nasty, infectious wound was, like, right up my alley. <laughs> um, uh, he probably, like, came around the corner and I was lighting something on fire behind the garage or something like that. And that's when he knew that he could t talk to me. <laughs> this kid is one of us. <laughs> so uh, I remember her like bringing me inside and me fighting and be like, no, I'm going to go upstairs and just get this guy a clean pair of socks. And I remember the argument that ensued was like, you, you got to be careful. You can't, you know, you can't talk to homeless people and you got to be careful what you're doing. And I remember being like, hold on a second. Like, didn't we move to this neighborhood? Isn't our whole mission of being here is to do good and to help and do the right thing. And this guy is not abducting me. This guy's nice, and he just genuinely needs some help. And all he asked for was some clean socks. And I remember being like, you cannot stop me. I'm going to go outside, and I'm going to give this guy a clean pair of socks. And I got grounded, and the arguments that ensued after that. And that was the moment where I saw that the real true change in the Christian church and evangelicalism 
and what most people call the greater good. Um, and, and that's when I think I was really darkened to the church and Christianity and never really turned back after that point. Okay. And that's not the only time in my life where I've heard somebody have that experience where you see a very literal example of, I can help this guy. Like, I'm, I have multiple clean socks right now. I won't miss this pair. I can just give them to him, and yet that is somehow a bigger transgression to your parents than just sitting in your room and not going out. They would rather you do the kind of thing, the greater good of, right, if we all get together and pool our dollars and give them to this faceless organization, that's the greater good, as opposed to, like, this guy literally needs help. Like, you can see his open wounds. Like, just this side of stigmata, he's got holes in his feet where... Yeah, yeah, I mean, precisely. And and I think the thing that made the argument the toughest for my parents is I've lost most of it, but at that time I was really well educated on the Bible. So when I can use their own religion as an argument against them, and I, I was old enough at that point to think rationally like that, of like, hold on, let me throw a Bible verse X, Y, and Z at you, and how could you answer the fact that you're mad that I went to give this guy socks when we have these things right here? And there was no turning point in the argument where they're like, oh, you know, that's actually spot on correct. Um, so it it was it was it was eye opening. And since then, I mean, that was ballpark 15, 20 years ago. Have you explored much into your own faith since then as far as what the bigger picture is, like the existential idea of why are we here and for full disclosure to anybody listening, I actually spoke at your wedding and made both joking and serious references to the fact that this is all absurd. Like, you and your wife found each other out of six billion people, and you're just crazy pants about each other, and you want to be best friends forever and be married, and we're just monkeys on a rock. You know, like, that kind of stuff, that blows my mind. That's why I like asking these questions. Is that anything that I remember your wife saying that kind of weirdness is exactly why you wanted me to speak at your wedding. And is that anything that reverberates with you or is that just kind of like, well, you know, that's not getting me from A to B during my day. Is that anything that you chew on? Um, I think I have done a lot of chewing and I think I've come to a conclusion that, no, I feel stupid every time I say it out loud. Not, not, it's because it, it I, I say I come to a conclusion that is absolutely not a conclusion whatsoever. I've come to a conclusion that at the end of the day, I'd rest my hat on the fact that I'm an atheist. But what I can recognize, and I think what I've been exploring more than Christianity, or more than religion, excuse me, is the universe. And the universe is so vast to begin to say that I understand anything that could possibly exist in this universe is a lie, and I know that. So to say that I'm an atheist isn't quite true because I have no fucking clue what exists out there. Right. And I don't think that our Earth is unique in what it is. I think it's unique in, in its place in the universe, but I don't think that we are the only civilization that's ever existed. I don't think that – I think we're such a small part – that I have no, no, no clue to what it is. And I definitely recently was having dinner with somebody who point blank asked me, as kind of chewing on these ideas, asked me, do you think that we are eternal beings experiencing a temporary existence? Because I had started to kind of broach these subjects. And this person who is a fascinating person and hopefully future guest on the podcast uh, 
had plenty to say about that, but when I responded finally, having weighed my words carefully, kind of hit on a similar idea that I think, if anything, it's almost an absurdist idea to think that knowing the vastness of what we know is out there, and it's easy to stand on the shoulders of giants and say, all of this that's come before us, we can just sit here and say, knowing all that, having done all that, you know, not doing the heavy lifting ourselves, looking out at the universe, it just seems like hubris to think we could know anything beyond our own little monkey existence. And when I said that, she instantly came back with, why do you say hubris? And I recognize that, oh, no, it's I have low self-esteem, for one. Like, <laughs> I, I'm generally, I'm going to assume I'm the dumbest person in the room, but I'll talk as though I'm the smartest. But it just, it seems impossible to know anything beyond this short lifespan. It's like explaining freeway traffic to ants. Like, they can see that there's something big going by, but we don't necessarily know what in the world that would be. So not necessarily atheist with a capital A, but maybe atheist with a lowercase a, where you're like, I just don't feel that there's something there. Do you think that we're an eternal being, or do you think that it's just lights out, dead, over? It's it's funny you should ask this question today, because I randomly went down this path with Erica, my wife, a couple days ago. Um, The thought of being an internal being is the scariest thing in my life that could exist. I would say the same thing. Particularly the thought of being an eternal being under the realm of Christianity. So going to heaven, um, God, if my parents listen to this podcast, we can't ever let them find out this exists. (laughs) Uh, Going and spending the rest of eternity with my parents is the most frightening and thing that I can imagine. I love my parents to death, Um, but it's though you know it's those people that. that I can't wrap my head around the thought of eternity, but I also can't wrap my head around the thought of time without eternity and how that can possibly be a good time in eternity, how that can be a good thing of everybody's idea of perfect is different. So how can you exist in a place where everybody is in their ideal situation with nothing that can possibly go wrong without something going wrong, without something bothering you, without something being annoying and then the thought of sitting there and thinking like i can't do anything ever about this ever again yeah that the idea of even your endorphins get tired of something like pleasure chemicals wear out and you just get atrophied you get bored with something you figure out like oh this is just how it's going to be forever the idea for me of thinking our permanent uh infinite existence would be based on something like this just seems like it's based on the idea of well this is what we know so therefore the afterlife must be just like this with more of it like no that just seems like short-sighted and i would say childlike almost in the thought of what the afterlife would be but then it's always been a noodle baker for me to think about how the big bang theory works in the notion of what pre-existed that inception point of okay so our models fall apart when we get beyond that we can go back to the point demonstrably of everything was condensed down to a single point and then it went pop and was everywhere and we can measure the background radiation to show there was an explosion at some point where did it come from that's where everything falls apart and it just feels like a magic trick to just say well god did it but i think people of a deeper intellect and a much more inquisitive mind would say, well, no, there's more to it than that. But it just, I'm of a similar similar mindset with you that it just seems like it can't just be more of this. It can't just be, well, there's my dad over there and there's my great grandpa over there and there's Napoleon over there, like not assuming Napoleon would go to heaven. But, He's not making it that way. Um, but 
to those ends, you don't think that it's necessarily like this. So what do you think happens when you die? Um, what I want to believe is that you nothing. You cease to exist. It just you, lights out. That's the end. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily the minute that your heart stops. Well, <laughs> the minute that your heart stops beating, that <laughs> we'll get into uh, that. That that's the end of it. And I, I, I mean, I don't know how long it takes for your consciousness to stop existing. Right? Does your body and your consciousness align one in one? Um, or does your body live on past your consciousness? And what we think is death has actually happened 45 seconds earlier. Um, I don't know, but I, I think what I feel most comfortable in believing is that that is the end. Okay. And that's definitely uh, something that's been tinkered with in science from history till now is when is that moment? It used to be just when you stopped breathing and that was it. And there were a lot of cases of burying people who were very much alive but in a coma. And so they would put a little bell on the surface tied down to the coffin and if you wake up you could ring the bell and the graveyard keeper what's the name for the crypt keeper no the guy who tends the grounds groundskeeper <laughs> would hear the bell and say oh we got a live one and <laughs> dig you back up um and you know there's the horrible example of terry shivo who was very much i would say demonstrably not coming back and yet being kept alive i mean when do you say somebody is dead but we're getting further down to slicing that moment into further interstitial pieces of dead is hard to define. So what year was it? 2013. You can check the... 2013. Check the paperwork for reference. But <laughs> I called Brian one evening in January. January, yep. I called Brian to say, hey, man, what's going on? We should go out and grab a drink. <laughs> and with no preamble, no nothing, just picked up the phone you said yeah well i died today so i don't really know if i'm up for it and i thought you were joking i thought you're messing with me because you are the master of deadpan with me and can make me believe anything and then you went on to explain that literally you died yeah so it started a few days before that um and a lesson learned to everybody listening in uh don't be stubborn like me uh, I was having these insane dreams, um, and in these dreams, I would wake up not breathing. Um, and I, I distinctly remember, like on the in the bed, uh, hands out to the side, grabbing uh, a sheet, you know, just like pulling, you know, where you have that feeling where you're sleeping, you wake up, you're falling, or whatever that is. Except for this feeling was, uh, I'm no longer breathing anymore. And it was like night three of that where I finally came to the realization, like, what if I, this is true? Like, what if this isn't a dream? I'm really stopping breathing in the middle of the night. I, it went along with a very severe cough. Um, and see, that's a new wrinkle. I haven't heard those details before. You've had time to kind of process this and digest this to figure out your, your yeah, whole experience. Yeah, it takes a lot of, like, thinking back on the feelings that you thought. And then also getting the feelings in the future of, like, getting sick again and getting – and then be like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is, this brings me back. Sure. 
So just a few nights of just waking up and, and not breathing um, and then just stubbornness of like, uh, oh, I should just smoke some more weed to fall back asleep. Like, what do you need more than anything when your lungs aren't functioning is to <laughs> jam it full of smoke and tar. Make them work uh, harder. Uh, you know, yeah, to then fall back asleep. So it's like just knock yourself back upright and go back to sleep. And then and then one day I go to work and uh, I go to visit the urgent care and I see a doctor and I go and I, I have this incredible pain in my shoulder at this point. It's moving up through my shoulder and just vibrating pain it's lungs coughing and shoulder go to urgent care and the woman thinks i'm there to get drugs because i say can i just get something to sleep at night i'm not able to sleep i'm waking up i'm waking up catching my breath she just gives me an inhaler and sends me on my way after shaming me for like what are you here for is it drugs that you want like no i just want to feel better ma'am i'm gamefully employed <laughs> i'm healthy look at me do i look like a junkie do i well, want pills t- to be fair i you mean i wouldn't have turned down out. drugs if she would have passed them over to me uh anything that would have helped me sleep at night but that certainly wasn't my intention of going there but you were legitimately in severe pain and i yeah. think you're you're yeah. similar to my wife in that you have a high constitution and that you don't get a narcotic feeling from taking painkillers you're not like taking them for a buzz necessarily no you're right um but i have always wanted somebody to prescribe me scissor so maybe i was <laughs> pushing for that you know like how do the how, what do you exactly how sick do you have to be to get some of that scissor the rappers are all talking about well and then it's medical sprite too the sprite comes from the pharmacy they have to mix it up there it's a jolly rancher made by cvs exactly uh do you guys just give me the double styrofoam cups or do i have to bring my own <laughs> in uh, so needless to say, she sent me away. I go back to work that day. I worked for a terrible boss and a terrible job at the time. And I start coughing up blood. Um, and genuinely, 100%, my boss goes, no, that's good. It means you're working the infection out of your system. Are you fucking kidding me? And you have somebody who, like, I didn't look up to him, but at the time he had kids. And I was like, no, if you know. the di- I went to the urgent, urgent care. They didn't seem to care. And you're telling me that this is good. And I know, like, when you start working out yellow stuff, it's supposed to be good. But... Well, the, okay. I'll grant that. But when you coughed up blood, first of all, did you feel like you were in a Lifetime movie of just, <laughs> oh, no, this is. I don't remember. Like, I don't remember being emotionally attached to the fact that that was a horrible thing. Mistake number one, again, to review, if you're coughing up blood, go to the hospital. Um, but at the time, I just remember being like, oh, all right. I think part of that was, I, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> currently fighting a cough as well. <laughs> I, uh, I remember distinctly um, being like, well, the doctor didn't seem to think this is a problem. Like, she just shooed me away and thought this is a cold. Apparently, this is one of those colds where you start coughing up blood. Um, and it, I mean, it starts to come up in chunks. Like, um, Jesus, was this part of the the clot, or is it your body fighting? Yeah, so I'm actually coughing out a clot that's in my own. Spoiler alert, John. Sorry, get a clot. But uh, is it, was it coming? Like, were you just coughing into your hand, and like, how did you figure out? Like, oh God, there's blood there. Like, I could fully yeah. see myself in a movie theater just coughing up and just, like, eh, wiping it on my pants. And no, <laughs> I mean, I was wiping in. I mean, at that because previous to that, I'd been coughing up some pretty severe uh, stuff, you know, chunks of stuff. So at, at that point, I was using a napkin, coughing in. But you're actually getting, like, some – I think at that time it was just, like, more of a sprinkle than anything. Even so more terrifying. I go home. I go to bed. Uh, my wife, God bless her soul, did not agree with my decision to go to bed. Um Continue to wake up through the night having the feeling that I'm stopping breathing. Still too dumb and stubborn to recognize the fact that that was legit. Uh, wake up in the morning, call your nurse line. You know, five days in of almost stopping breathing, I finally was like, maybe I should call the nurse line. 
what are your symptoms, sir? I'm coughing up blood. She says, call an ambulance immediately. What are you doing? <laughs> I said, I've been doing it for like 12 hours. It's cool. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm a she pro. Says, I know sir, stop what you're doing. Hang up the phone and call 911 immediately. I said, all right. Let's just settle with the fact I'll drive myself to the emergency room. <laughs> so I put on my work clothes for the day thinking I'm going to go to the emergency room, get cleared, and then go back into the office, get in my car, drive to the emergency room. Uh, I think Erica drove separately. Like, hey, I'll just see you in there, and then um, and then I'll, I'll go into the office as well. Get in, you know, see that alarming face when the lady at the front desk says, what do you hear before? And I'm like, <clears throat> oh, you see right here? I'm coughing up blood. Watch your eyes just like open up. Like, uh, let's get this guy back right now. Biohazard, go now. So immediately you get rolled into a room. Uh, you know, obviously a bunch of tests are done on me at that point. And the first doctor I see, uh, even before I like really told her about coughing blood, was just like, because I'm still like, the pain in my shoulder is the worst thing that's happening right now. Uh, she's like, you have a blood clot. That's it. And, I, and I'm like, well, how is that so obvious? She says, well, the vein goes from your diaphragm up through your shoulder, or the nerve, excuse me. And so like you're putting pressure in your diaphragm. You have tons of lung pain, and it's shooting through your shoulder. Like, this is telltale. You can barely breathe. Let's get you back right away. So... They pull me back into the room, uh, and I'm in my my bed. My wife sticks around then, and uh, they start to run tests on me. And um, so there's three of us in the room at that point. It's me, my wife, who's sitting next to me, and then the technician or nurse. I don't know what her role was, but somebody who's like, we need to immediately start pulling blood from this guy. So um, they set me down in the bed, and, and I stick my arm out. And uh, she starts taking blood. But nor like what you would normally expect, not a massive amount of blood. They're just taking those vials out from me. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, I, I feel so shitty right now. Like, this is terrible. I think I'm going to throw up. Um, and it's just getting foggier and foggier and foggier. And then um, I don't know how to explain it. It's... It to this day, like there's no way to define what was dreaming and what was real. But when you find out that my heart had stopped beating, I guess it changes from like I guess that wasn't a dream. Um, but I, I was a dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Um, it changed. So okay, let's take it back a step. Actually, it's hard to like think in my head it's very clear in my head i can vision i can get the same thing that i'm seeing right now to actually say this it's one of those things where you start to describe a dream and like in your head it's normal and you're like oh yeah i was getting chased by a giant grilled cheese sandwich that happens all the time yeah you were there uh, <laughs> but it wasn't really you and i was freaking out yeah so i distinctly remember a feeling of leaving my body so having this altered change of view where I went from being existing in my body and saying, I feel funny, this is not normal, to flipping it where now I am above my body like a helium balloon floating in the room, bumping up against the ceiling, looking down. And in that moment is uh, a dog being worked on. And there are people everywhere. And there's this dog in the emergency room. And in the moment, I remember knowing I was dreaming and, and saying, this is, this is a strange dream. Um, but there was an emergency, and everybody's rushing in, and this dog is getting worked on. Um, and then it flips to 
me being back in my body again just as quickly as it flipped up it flipped back down um and i'm back in my body and like all of a sudden that feeling of just like (laughs) like the whole reality this cloudiness everything that was happening like rushes into my chest and then somebody is sitting on top of me yelling at me and I look around the room and I see this person who's on top of me. And what he's yelling is, I have no clue. Uh, but what I, the first thing I remember him yelling is about my chest hurting, my chest hurting. Um, and I'm, I'm confused because I was just dreaming. And I, I'm fine. I'm in a room and I'm just getting my blood drawn. And now there's like 15 people in this room right now. So I'm working my way through the room. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm somewhat aware now that they're slapping the defibrillator chests or disfibrillator stickers onto my chest and on my back, massive amounts of sweat, like insane amounts of just like feeling this sweat pour off my body. And I'm working my way through the room and I'm trying to figure it out. And it's not until I land on my wife in the corner and like the panic in her face was the realization that that, that I died, that I stopped, my heart stopped beating. And I am still like working with this feeling of being there, but not being there. Uh, but that kind of like grounded me into like, oh shit, something is happening right now. And then I realized what the guy is asking me is, does your chest hurt? He's saying it over and over, something about my chest, my chest hurting. And then I remember like another snap and looking at him and like, yes, my chest hurts. That's why I'm at the emergency room. That's why I came in here right now. <laughs> Like, will you stop asking that question? Been listening. I'm trying to fucking figure out what's happening here. And and that's when, like, I'm looking down and realizing, like, I've got the defibrillator pads on me. And this guy who's asking me this, I'm like, why are you on top of me? Like, what can't you ask the question from next to my bed? It's like, oh, you were you were doing CPR. So chest compressions, um, kind of figuring out and my chest is fine right so they're trying to figure out if they broke ribs if they broke my sternum i mean from what i found out later is this guy is just like hopping on top of me doing the chest compressions so they're trying to figure out if i'm fine in which case like everything checks out i feel fine um i mean obviously like mentally i don't but physically i felt all right um and then trying to wrap my head around everything that uh that went on um and it took honestly like a few years to truly put all of that experience together of like pieces and i've had i have a feeling at another point and that feeling would like take me right back to the hospital bed and i'd kind of piece it and piece it and who knows maybe there's more that i'll piece together in the future i feel now like i have closed the picture and i have all the pieces to the puzzle but um i guess I'll, i'll find out down the road yeah um yeah that that's the story of my heart stopping beating jesus god yeah and so some point later on that evening i called you asking to go out for a beer (laughs) yeah um and i was on drugs and i was in a hospital bed and you like to mess with me and i like to yeah i do like to mess with you i'm a lot of fun to mess with um but thank you for sharing man it's it's heavy and profound and there were i've asked you about that a million times that i mean 
and <laughs> audience, please know I'm not a dick in that sense, but just because I'm fascinated by it. And it's such a horrifyingly explicit experience that I, you can't help but be curious about it. And you've the way you've digested it and unpacked it is just so elegant and so... I just, I find it just utterly fascinating. And I think it's, on one aspect, I like that, you know, you key in on it saying this is a strange dream. And I think that's not necessarily just the moment of thinking you're dreaming, but your, whatever that essence is within you, looking down at the body on the ground or on the, on the table saying, this is a strange dream to be, you know, to be in the body. That's a strange dream, but knowing that does that affect your idea at all or your notion of whether or not we're an eternal creature do you what do you think that was um i think it was my life slipping away your essence of brian yeah i think that the feeling that i was having and this is where like the realization came more over the years was the feeling of leaving my body the feeling of looking down like uh those are turning points and in the process of death i feel like the and this is what makes me fear death more from this point is watching it happen so then would it be a next step up like like i said i felt like a helium balloon bouncing against the ceiling you know then that's the dream come that that helium balloon gets sucked up through an air vent and like you're just feeling your life slip away and you have the ability to watch it and that's the most frightening thing is if you can't do anything about that and i never had a feeling of fighting i never had a feeling of um of trying to come back you know or having control over that aspect there wasn't a panic fight against it and so the other question is do you realize it's happening because at the point at that time again i wasn't sitting there like oh i'm i'm slipping away and i'm dying so is it is it not bad at all because you don't realize what's happening and you are just slowly removing yourself from your physical body um and i the only reason i can pull that all together is because i came back and i lived through it um but I don't think it didn't change a thought on death. You know, I think it took so long to process too. It wasn't like I came back and was like, oh, I need to rethink everything that I'm doing right now. It took so long to realize the events that happened that day internally, you know, my internal events that happened. I don't, it didn't change my views on eternity, on religion, on death. Um, I can still believe that death is death and that that is the end of it. Um, and what happened to me didn't change that because I still feel like I would have just slipped off into the darkness and that would have been the end of it. So do you think that uh, it hasn't necessarily been impactful on your life other than the fact that that happened and you're appreciative to be here? Or is it more so just be mindful of your body and listen to when you have some pain and i think obviously that was a big wake-up call for me is i mean you weren't unhealthy before right i mean they just changed some particular things about your diet for a while and said you know eat more leafy vegetables and well that was because i've been on i I have a blood disorder that causes clotting and um and i 
the diet change was because of blood thinner medications that yeah. I'm on, which I'm no longer on the same one, so life is easier for that reason. Because you're super active, and you're not somebody who just eats indulgently. And mm, I sure do eat indulgently. <laughs> you eat very well. I wouldn't say indulgently, oh, but like oh, I don't know. I made some Toll House cookies that were supposed to last a week on the Super Bowl night, and <laughs> there's no way they're making it through this evening. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, part of it is body changes. Like, I can be more active. I can eat healthier. Um, part of it is genetics of, like, I have this blood disorder that caused this thing. Part of it is pay, paying more attention to my body. So I think the thing out of that is, like, being more in tune with my body and taking things more seriously. Sure. You know, in hindsight, those nights where I was waking up not breathing, I was literally waking up not breathing. You know, yeah. lying on my back in the middle of the night as my lungs filled with blood. I was waking up because I lost the ability to breathe. So making sure that things don't get to that point um, is critical. Not being afraid to spend money on health care. Oh, God. Going to urgent care for coughs. You know, I went this week because I've had a cough develop. Um, when I go there, talking them through my history and saying, like, whatever is extra precautious, let's just do it. I'll pay for it. Yeah. Uh, appreciating every day for what it is it was like the idea i got this tattoo on my chest to remind myself of what happened but in all honesty i spend just as many days sitting on the couch bullshitting playing video games as i did before i think children change that more i think more of an outlook on life as far as death is concerned and preciousness of life and spending time with around you like kids change that drastically i wasn't afraid of death even after this experience i'm scared to death to die now since I've had children. Yeah, and it should be noted all of this happened before you had your oldest, and now that's... Yeah, I was a few years... I mean, this was a few years before I had a kid. Um, I'm At this point, like my, I was kind of a shit show for my life, you know, like... You were late 20s, just figuring it yeah, out. Yeah, I was, a, I, was a, I was, I guess, the, stereo, the poster child millennial, you know, like no savings, spending money, credit card debt, no, no like, vision for the future, driven to an extent, but not driven by something, um, just kind of floating by, making it from day to day. And I don't know that this actually changed anything, but I know that definitely when I had the conversation of urgency for like, hey, we should just do it, it did change my life to be like, why not just pursue that? Like, mm -hmm. why not just go buy a house? And why not get married now? And why not start a family and do these things that I've talked about? Why not take the job that's gonna make me happier? Why not go on the vacation? It gave me a little bit more of that, but also that might be like I started to make more money and just got older and got more mature. And Well, but then look at the timing of this kind of stuff happening and then the overlap of you really taking charge of your own life. You definitely leveled up in how you approach things and how you just – if you're going to do it, do it. Like you don't sit back and wait for things to happen. You take charge and you do stuff. I'm all, I'm still blown away by all the work you did on your house where it's just like, no, I'm just going to do this and pull this down and figure this out and open this up. Like – I just obsessively worry about like, oh, but what if I do this? It's going to go wrong. Cause you're like, fuck it. Just pull the thing and go. Yeah. But I don't know. I think the same attitude that you're describing if it's a positive is an attitude that got me in the hospital from being like, fuck it. Let's just follow this. Right. Like I've always had that. Like I've always had that attitude. Uh, I think it could have helped that I felt this pull towards the preciousness of life. But I think that's always kind of been me. It's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's just try it. Um, Can I ask about seeing yourself as a dog? Fuck. 
It was a German Shepherd, too. I hate German Shepherds. You don't have a German Shepherd. No, I, I fear. It's the only kind of dog I'm uncomfortable around. They have those big backs full of hair. They remind me of hyenas. They kind of, Especially the ones that have the huge, wide shoulders. Yeah. The giant German Shepherds, and that's what this was. So, I mean, we could dig deep into this about fear, but I, I, it's not that deep, you know? Like, I don't... I don't obsess about German oh, Shepherds. Oh, contraire. We could unpack the shit out of this. <laughs> there are many things I would like to ask about it. But so do you think it would maybe be a message from your mind saying there's the meat, there's the animal, there's the thing that is, you know, circulating tissue and like eats to live and like your body recognizing the um, the baseness of your corporeal existence? Like here's a visual metaphor of like there lies the animal, you know, as opposed to like this elegant – uh, jellyfish or something on the table that it was like that thing's an animal I'm leaving the animal behind you could say that because I, I could say it more is probably that's who I am is that animal that yeah that dog you know more than just like the meat and the flesh of what it is but maybe that's my personality I gotta say in the most loving way possible I do think of you as having some very dog essence that you are just yeah you love the people you love you will sit by the campfire with and just curl up tail wagging and just something happens you just yeah like you yeah Yeah. and if i don't like the smell of you right away like it's done Mm -hmm. you know uh following my impulses of just like being in this moment of what's flashy in front of me and i'm gonna run after that now you can distract me pretty easily by throwing a tennis ball you know, like <laughs> literally and figuratively, yeah. yeah. Hey, Brian, 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 here you go, here you go. So that's me. Um, but then when I think about it, like, I don't know. Like, I don't think of myself that way. And mm-hmm. I don't think deep down. And at that point in my life, I was much more insecure, um, you know, battling a lot more with depression, just the struggling of like the transition of my life of going from this, like, this freewheeling, I was going to become a teacher and do the right thing to this corporate office worker with just the worst job in the world, chasing money, um, really, really insecure at that point. And now looking back and knowing who I've become and not having so many of those feelings anymore, I can safely say like I didn't deep down think of myself that way. Um, So for my brain to process that or whatever it was to process that into that dog, Hmm. I don't. I don't know. I'd say that's a stretch. That's but. heavy. I love it, though. I think that's just, it couldn't have, been, unless it was like a photograph of your face lying on the hospital <laughs> bed, there couldn't be not, there couldn't be a more Brian thing for your body to picture there of just like, there lies Brian. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. yeah. And that's why it took so long for me to come to, too, because I'm still battling. Like, you guys should go save that dog. Yeah. Like, there's a dog somewhere in this hospital that needs somebody's <laughs> help. Not sure why they're here. But I'm not sure why all of you in my room right now are worried about me. It's like an alternate playthrough of your life where the person just, instead of choosing Brian, they're like, I'm going to do this game as a German <laughs> shepherd. It's going to be weird for the college part, but mostly I can get through the gameplay the same way. Yeah. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing, man. That's just, it's insanely heavy, and it's been kind of the ultimate thing I wanted to talk to somebody about. Is like, you've been through, you've, you've had the big question, and you process it in your own way. I mean, that's just... So, to pivot... 90 degrees here mm-hmm. having experienced that have you ever been spooked have you ever seen a ghost have you ever seen or been like in a spooky house or anything like that where you feel something is like unseeable because i had recently somebody on who told me a straight-up ghost story and it was just 
and she had to go, so I want to have her back on to kind of unpack it more. But like, have you either before or after your heart incident had anything paranormal like that happen? No, and I've chased it out of curiosity. I feel like that would answer questions for me. Really? Yeah. If I believe that your body dies and your soul leaves your body fairly immediately, right? Obviously, given my story, it's not upon hard stopping. But um, how can I believe in a ghost then, right? Because, I mean, I guess a ghost could be trapped on Earth or it could be a a spirit trapped on Earth, but it's hard. I feel like it's a stretch for me to be able to say that not believing in an afterlife. It's a lot easier to say a spirit's trapped here on its way to heaven or hell or whatever that you believe in. But... Um, so I've, I've searched, I go to all of, you know, the haunted jails, the haunted houses. I went to Rapid City, South Dakota the other year or last year. And I stayed purposely in the haunted hotel on the floor. I couldn't get the room, but I got like the room next to it. And I went to bed with my paranormal reader app, you know, that's supposed (laughs) to show me the light waves. Like I crave it. I want it. I feel like if I, it would give me a new purpose in my direction and my thought of the afterlife. Sure. I can't find it. So no, I've never had that. I've had moments where I felt something, I felt weird, but then I'll get that feeling in another place where I don't feel like it's a spirit that's doing that to me. I think it's a self, it's something that I'm creating internally inside myself. It's the excitement more that's making me feel that. Um, I had some pictures when I first got a digital camera into this jail and I got these pictures and I'm like, oh, that's a spirit. You can see it in there. It's so obvious. I remember I printed them and I'd bring around and show people like, look, I got a picture of a ghost. And then three weeks later, I'm taking a picture somewhere else. And of course, the same thing shows up. It's like a water spot on the camera. you know. <laughs> so every time that I've tried, I've never come close. So I, I also feel like I have that. I'm not afraid to do to try anything. I know there's like a really haunted house in Iowa mm. where I think there was like a mass murder where a family was murdered and you can rent it and stay there with your friends. Jesus. Like that is something I would do. I am not afraid to do that because I think deep down inside I don't believe. I think the scariest thing for me, I guess, is if I was proven wrong <laughs> and then just tormented for the rest of my life dun, dun, dun. because I came into this thing like there's no way this house is haunted and then this kid follows me for forever just latches on making me horrible mm-hmm. um but I don't I want I don't believe it so the person that I had dinner with that was asking me those questions and I'll be mindful of your time here too I don't want to take you forever but uh they had gone to Four Paws restaurant in St. Paul and she had particularly uh, intentionally avoided several rooms of the restaurant that are known to be very haunted and her husband just walked upstairs and walked through a cloud of just what was that Hmm. of just he said it was just this side of tangible you know so there's and I wonder if your supposed lack of faith is actually what you view as a whole your faith is actually looking for something to put in that hole that it's you're curious about it. You're not just dismissing it. You're wanting to know there's got to be more. There's got to be something there. I want to see it. You want that proof. But the quest for that proof, that's the faith. I also, I don't want to dismiss other people's experiences as well, right? Like it's stubborn to sit here and say, you mm-hmm. had an experience. And for me just to say, bullshit, you didn't experience that. That couldn't right. have happened. Because if what you're describing to me is a feeling, right? Like you could sit here and be like, your out of body experience you had was BS. You saw a dog in a hospital room. So who am I to say what you'd experienced wasn't true? However, 
what I feel like I believe after exploring this and trying this on my own is you want that feeling. Like you are craving that, like I am. And so when you see that little thing on your picture, you want to believe that. So yeah, and also that these places are in the business of, of having you go home and tell your friends that, oh, I walked in this corner, it was warm. Oh, yeah. they're smart true. enough to put a heater above the corner yeah. <laughs> and make you feel that feeling of warmth. I'm telling you, I'm the easiest person to mess with. You don't have to try hard. You can just tap my other shoulder and be like, what was that? Exactly. So I think I, I think I, I, that's what I truly believe is that it was a feeling you had, but that feeling wasn't based off of the spirit. But I think you're right. I, I would like to fill that hole. I would love it if I could be proved without a shadow of a doubt. But your emotion is not going to prove to me that that thing existed. I need to experience that on my own. And I think that's also the feeling of faith, right? Uh, of faith in this thing, but Christianity faith. I think that's what I've been left chasing my whole entire life is I, every other person in my family, my aunts, my uncles, my parents, my cousins, I'm the only person in my family who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ and God. And so I have this feeling of just like, it, it would be so much easier if something could happen that would just be like, oh, yeah, obviously, that's the real deal. I've had that same thought. Like, it would just be so much easier to just, if there was some big sign and, oh, oh, that's it. That's the proof right there. Guys, no more questions. This is it. All right. But we're not going to get it. I that's hear a voice or I hear a feeling. or So I think with, with ghosts, I think what that would do and why I chase that is that would open that door, you know, mm. and, I f- and I feel like that would start to, to go down that path. But I'm also skeptical, and that's why every feeling I get, I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, guys, if you have uh, places for Brian to go get spooked and haunted, send him your recommendations. I'll put his <laughs> Twitter information so you can send him, go here, this place is cursed, there's a werewolf here. Yeah, but people got to come with me. My thing is, like, I get bored easily, and I get lonely. Um, and so, like, if you want to suggest a haunted house, you should just come with me to it so I don't have to do it alone. That's the caveat. Yeah, you have to come with. We'll handcuff them to you so they can't get away unless you're leaving. Yeah, because I'm not even afraid to go alone. I'm just bored to go alone. Okay. Well, that's much friendlier. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you for talking. Thank you for sharing. This was really, really cool. You're welcome. All thank right. You. Anything you want to plug before we go? No. I plug um, my kids. Kids are great. Shit. Yeah. They're adorable. Cool. One's over here in the other room making a little bit of noise. He's been very good and very quiet. And my wife, Erica. Um, I'd love to get her on here talking about her experience, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always afraid to hear her experience. Um, well, you don't have to be in the room. Uh, there's no way I wouldn't listen to it. We went and saw, <laughs> oh, man. We went and saw, this is, uh, what was it? The Hunger Games. The Hunger Games where the dude... Uh, Peta runs into like an electrical field and his heart stops and he has to be resuscitated and um, oh shit um, we're sitting in this movie theater and we went with other people I don't know who we went with I think like a bunch of people it was like a party day we had snacks and stuff like that and I knew it as soon as it happened and as soon as that person bent over to start resuscitating him I look over and Erica is just having a panic attack She's crying, and that was, like, the first time she was able to, like, deal with that emotion and, like, seeing it. It was in front of her face. Um, so, like, the other people in the movie theater are, like, watching because, like, you're sitting near people. And um, and then both of us are just bawling 
And like, I'm sure the people are like, these people really love PETA. Like, this is unreal. Like, they really don't want to see this guy die. Uh, but we're like dealing with this super heavy situation of which there's no way to talk about this or like deal with this. Um, but I think that was cleansing to be able to like sit through that. And that like opened it to like when we left. You know, I was like, holy shit, what was that? Like, what just happened in that movie theater right now? Um, so it's like frightening to hear her side to hear what she had to go through and to think about like the pain and the fear that happened there is really hard for me to think about and that's why I'm so afraid of death is like leaving them with this feeling all of the time of uh, that they could have done something or how terrible it was or having to see that like that is just too heavy um, so yeah she's open to it she'd come talk to you about it um She'd love to chew it up. Who knows what she's going to uncover in her conversation because she's from a good old just swallow your feelings type family. And, uh, <laughs> Those are my people. <laughs> I know yeah. that. That's, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how much she's done with really like embracing what happened that day and really processing it. Okay. Well, I'll tread lightly, but I appreciate it, man. Again, I can't thank you enough. That was heavy, profound shit, and it really means the world that you'd be willing to share it and – you just shared it wonderfully. So thank you, man. Appreciate it. You're welcome.